So we've been looking at uh, this, what I've named uh, the mystery of ministry, and it's taken from uh, this passage that we've read together. Uh, If you look in Colossians chapter 1, verses 23 and 25, Paul speaks of uh, the gospel, uh, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, this is Colossians 1.23, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then he speaks of it again in verse uh, 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. We also have seen that he uses the word mystery, um, in verse 26, and again in uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, the mystery, which is Christ, he says in chapter 2, and in chapter 1, he says the mystery, uh, which is Christ in you. Three times he uses the word mystery. So we've kind of combined those uh, two words into the subject, the mystery of ministry. And it was probably four or five weeks ago that I mused or I, I gave the idea that this would be a good time to talk about uh, what is involved in Christian ministry and in particular, what was the pattern in, in Paul's life. Um, so Saturday, that Saturday night, I didn't have a message. Sunday morning, I woke up with this outline uh, the Apostle Paul, we've all already uh, seen his conversion in Acts 9, 15 through 16. This was, this was the shape or the outline of God's intrusion into Paul's life, claiming Paul for his own. His conversion in Acts chapter 9, and we saw his own words, his autobiography in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 11. And then the last two Sundays, we've talked about Paul's ministry philosophy from 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 1 through 13, which basically um, Paul tells us that philosophically speaking, as opposed to um, the Greek philosophers, his philosophy was uh, to know only Christ and him crucified. Uh, that that was his approach. And when I came to you, I came to you in, in trembling and fear. I didn't come in the eloquent words of man's wisdom so that your faith would be founded in the wisdom of God. I came to you after this long walk. That's the Latin phrase. I had to look it up, salvator ambulando, which basically means the solution comes by walking. Um, Paul had a 50-mile walk, and he came to some conclusions. Uh, He was a different man than he was in Athens. When he preached in Athens in Acts chapter 17, when he showed up in Corinth, Corinth was the vanity fear of the Roman Empire at that time. It was a hard place to establish a church. He works there, labors there for 18 months, and has a vision in which the Lord comes to him and tells him not to be afraid, uh, that no harm will come to him because 
God's uh, superimposed purpose in Paul's life, I have much people in this city. It's an amazing story when you think of it, and I think sometimes we're so, uh, we've become so familiar with uh, Paul in the pages of the New Testament that we just need to stand back from the forest just a little bit and see uh, this amazing transcendent picture that Uh, God plays through in Paul's life. So today we're going, and and I'm not sure that we'll finish this today, if not, Lord willing, uh, next week, Paul's ministry reality. And we're going to look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 12. So if you want to turn over there uh, with me, it's one thing to say, um, Particularly, uh, <laughs> I was and graduated from the eighth grade um, Friday night, and they have a little, uh, I don't know whether it was an online booklet or page, like a yearbook you put together. And one of the questions had a few of his pictures there. One of the questions was, where will you be in 10 years? And he said, I will be in college. And he spelled college, C-O-L-L-A-G-E. I said, dude, you're already in a collage here, uh, but a collage is not the same as a college, and apparently you need to go to college. I didn't tell him that. That's, this is what I said to myself. Um, so it, it's interesting because, you know, Christy has done the same thing with graduates here in this church. You know, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And, you know, they've all said, oh, I'm driving a Ferrari and living in a multi-million dollar mansion in Dubai and blah, blah, blah. And then it's fun to see him 10 years later, like, how'd that work out for you? Because we know that life is what happens to us when we're planning for something else, right? And, And that's not to be skeptical. Neither should we not enter into the joy of the occasion. You know, you have your whole life in front of you, but sometimes you're your embryo philosophy does not actually play out the way you thought it would. And so it's one thing to look at Paul's philosophy, which basically was a theology of suffering. We've seen that. He was rejecting the theology of glory. He was embracing the theology of suffering. Uh, I will show him, God said in his conversion, I will show him how many Great things he must suffer for my name's sake. There it is. You want here's your here's your byline on your business card, Paul. Uh, Suffer for Christ. So that was his philosophy. He embraced it. But what was the reality when when the rubber really met the road? When He was called, of course, we know of his missionary journeys, Christianity. Uh, We would not be Christians today if it wasn't for God's use of the Apostle Paul. Now, if Paul didn't didn't answer the call, I believe God would have gotten someone else. Actually, uh, I think there is good evidence to, to say that Stephen, who was the first martyr in the church, Acts chapter 7 records his sermon. He was a deacon, records his sermon and his death. 
I believe that it, it could have been God's initial purpose to use Stephen to do this work. Because Stephen, if you read his sermon, even though he's just a deacon, a servant, he has a, a grasp on uh, the, the full orb nature of the gospel. And in fact, Bible scholars tell us that every theme that we rejoice in in Paul's writings can be traced back to Stephen's sermon, which Saul of Tarsus heard on that day because he stood by consenting to his death, in fact, holding the outer clothes of those who stoned Stephen to death. Uh, so I have to believe that if uh, Stephen was number one, Paul was no, Saul of Tarsus was number two, they got out of number three in, in the wings somewhere that if Saul had not responded, but it seems to me... Um, uh, that Saul was the person who was asking the right questions in Acts chapter 9. Who art thou, Lord? What wilt thou have me to do? Who are you, Jesus? Who are you? And What will you have me do? Uh, it, that seemed to be the essence of Paul's personality. Uh, when God, he, he, we know that he was filled with zeal, uh, for uh, the God of Israel. God took that zeal, uh, that, that zeal and condensed it down into his life. Here, here's your fundamental mission statement, Paul. Who are you and what will you have me to do? The, the two are connected. You don't have much to do. You don't have anything of any lasting uh, effect to do in this life if you don't know Jesus Christ. Who are you? Uh, what Lord, what will you have me to do? So let's look at this uh, amazing passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we know that First Corinthian, the, the Corinthian church was a difficult church. Uh, we know that there were maybe upwards of five Corinthian epistles. We know that there was uh, were letters being exchanged between Paul and uh, the Corinthians. What we have in First and Second Corinthians is two of possibly upwards of five letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So sometimes we're uh, we are reading through these letters. We would benefit from the other three letters, but we don't have them. At least we don't have them yet. It doesn't seem as if we will ever have them. We know that in 1 Corinthians, Paul is, um, Paul is using his wit and sarcasm and even at times cynicism with the Corinthian people. They are uh, bad-mouthing him. Even though he was their father in the Lord, he was the one who worked by his own hands. They, they accuse him of, uh, even at one point, of unjust gains through the ministry. And um, Paul says, I could do that. The ox, when it treads the corn, the Old Testament law was, you're not supposed to muzzle the ox who treads the corn because the ox is doing the work. The ox has the right to eat. Uh, off the threshing floor, Paul says, I have the right, 
but I did not. I labored by my own hands to start this work, to support this work. But in 2 Corinthians, uh, as, as you heard me quote the one writer who said uh, Paul's tears are, uh, tear stains are seen on every page. He has uh, not necessarily a change of heart, but he is overwhelmed. Uh, with uh, compassion for them. Even as parents, we get mad with our kids, and then after we get mad with our kids, right, we, uh, we, we reconcile. We say, I want to give you a hug. I want to talk to you. I want, I want you to understand what is going on. And so this is really what we have in Second Corinthians. Paul's a ministry reality that I think is front and center in the first 12 verses of Second Corinthians 4. He says, therefore... Uh, having this ministry by the mercy of God. So the ministry was not a burden to Paul. He recognized that God's choice of him to be a minister, to preach the gospel, to bring folks to a full maturation of understanding the, the gospel, he received that as a gift of grace. He did not complain about it, notwithstanding all that he went through. He recognized ultimately that it was God's grace at work in his life. There is a lesson to be learned for every Christian, every person who is in ministry. Sometimes uh, we get tired, we get worn out. Um, we want to give up. We want to, uh, you know, say, I can't take this anymore. But in the end, uh, Jesus gave the parable of the unprofitable servant. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, whatever ministry we, we have has been given to us, gifted to us by the mercy of God. And because of that, he said, we do not lose heart. Now, every day, um, churches in America close down. Every day in America, pastors of churches leave the ministry because they lose heart. Uh, it would seem to me that this would be a good verse for every one of us to read or to quote when we first put our feet on the floor in the morning. I don't lose heart because I have received this ministry by the grace of God. That doesn't mean that there aren't issues. It doesn't mean that there aren't issues. There are issues and the issues are noted when Paul says in verse 2, he begins with the word but. This is true. I've received this ministry from God by his mercy, and I do not lose heart, but. Here, here is the reality. Disappointed, but not devastated. Here's the reality, but 
we have, and you might want to underline four important words uh, in verse 2, but we have renounced, first of all, disgraceful, secondly, underhanded, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, period. We, so Paul is not alone in this. Paul is not saying, uh, this is something that I have lone wolf adopted. No, no, no. Those who subscribe to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, uh, we refuse to practice, number three, cunning, or to, number four, tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul is saying, I have nothing to hide. God be my witness. I have nothing to hide. Uh, look, look at these four words. Uh, the first one, disgraceful. Uh, could be understood as shameful. Underhanded could be understood as uh, corrupt. Cunning, another word for that would be craftiness. And the word tamper to adulterate as in much the same way as wine, as the party would go on, wine was sometimes... Um, Water was added to wine to adulterate it or to compromise it, to make it, to lengthen it, because by that time a person had drunk so much it didn't matter. Paul says we have renounced shameful, corrupt ways. We refuse. You, you see, there, there are some things that are optional, but there are other things that... you. You, you're, no matter how much it hurts you or the people around you, there are some things you just have to say, nope, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. We live in a culture where everybody wants to hear the word yes. We don't want to be uncooperative just because we're ornery. Ornery is a shortened version of the word ordinary. Go home, look it up. We don't want to be viewed as ordinary. We want to be viewed as expansive, welcoming, open. Uh, Open-mindedness just says, uh, I accept you for who you are. Hopefully you accept me for who I am. Even in academic circles now, when they send out emails, they put at the end of the email, after they, they sign their name, they put at the end of the email the pronouns by which they prefer to be referred to. And this, this kind of atmosphere in, in our culture just says, well, um, and, and believe me, I will accept you for however you want to be accepted. But when it comes to ministry, 
when it comes to the, the church, again, where Paul's saying this gospel of which I became a minister for your sake, there's some things that we say no to. Ostensibly, there should be good reasons for saying no, and, and our, our prejudice or our lack of information are not good excuses. We should be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We refuse to practice craftiness or to adulterate God's work. In 2010, uh, there was a Senate subcommittee that did an investigation into um, six major ministries, uh, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Eddie Long, Randy, and Paula White. You might remember it. Uh, that subcommittee investigation, which involved the IRS, got nowhere. And... I'm not uh, denying that maybe it shouldn't have got, I'm not saying that the fact that it didn't get anywhere is a bad thing. There, there are issues that have to do with the separation of church and state there. Uh, we, we are a 501c3, and as a 501c3 nonprofit organization, otherwise known as a church recognized uh, by the IRS tax code, and and we have... We have no one looking over our shoulder at all. We have, we have no one. There are no forms, annual forms to file for us. There are other nonprofit uh, paragraphs that require, you know, annual forms being uh, filled out and submitted. Uh, there's nothing. Uh, you can be a little storefront church with three people coming, and we're doing a little bit better than that this morning. Uh, and you can be recognized by the government as a 501c3, uh, just like, um, oh, I, I don't know, Moody uh, Bible Institute or uh, uh, Liberty University. Uh, there, there is, or any other large church, there, there is no expectation. Added to this, the IRS doesn't have enough people to audit never mind the people that should be audited, but to be auditing churches. And thirdly, auditing a church is uh, frowned upon in, in our culture still, thank God, because, um, well, don't you have, it's like a, a policeman handing out parking tickets. Why don't you go catch a murderer? So the Senate subcommittee that investigated these, these six ministries ended up Empty hand. It spent millions of dollars, and this is typically what happens: is that an investigation uh, is pursued, it costs millions of dollars, and there's nothing in the end to show for it. Uh, out of this six investigations, this one good thing happened, uh, and this was an article from uh, Christianity Today, I think, uh, uh, September of 2019. It starts by saying, Benny Hinn says he is done with the prosperity gospel. Uh, he says, I'm correcting my own theology and you need to all know it. In fact, um, Trinity Broadcasting Network, uh, the founders, the husband and wife, the Crouches both passed away. 
the one son took it over, and one of the things that he did immediately was to not allow these faith healers uh, access to a broadcasting time on Trinity Broadcasting Network anymore. And one of them was Benny Hinn. He says, I am correcting my own theology, and you need to all know it. The blessings of God are not for sale, and miracles are not for sale, and prosperity is not for sale. Then he goes on to say, I think giving has become such a gimmick. Of course, and the gimmick was uh, to use Jesus' own words in the hundredfold return. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he calls this now a gimmick. He said, it's making me sick to my stomach, and I've been sick for a while too. That's amazing that a healing evangelist would tolerate such sickness in his life, but he did. He said, I just couldn't say it, and now the lid is off. I've had it. You know why? I don't want to get to heaven and be rebuked. Now, it may have been worth the money that the government spent on six investigations to bring Benny Hinn to this confession. The hundredfold return um, was used in this way. You send in a dollar and God will give you a hundred dollars. You send in ten dollars, God will give you a thousand dollars. Do the math with me. You send in a thousand dollars, God will give you how many know that's a pretty good investment? And that there are little old ladies with scraps of cash in their cookie jars all over the country who would send in that money. And of course, we would say uh, that God honored, even as the widow dropped in a mite into the temple treasury, we would say that God honors their faith, right? They gave to God. Um, what what Benny or or Alan does with it, it that's a, that's between Benny and Alan and God. But none, nonetheless, Benny now describes this, and this was described as the greatest fundraising uh, process ever in the history of Christianity. Paul says, uh, we have renounced. We have refused. I'm sure there were times in the middle of the night when Paul woke up with problems overwhelming him, and he was tempted at times um, to, to backpedal on this, but he says, here it is, my ministry philosophy is a theology of suffering. The reality of it is, is there are some things that I will not do. Look in verse 5 of chapter 4. Here it is. Here, here is the reality. His philosophy is now translated into reality in ministry. In verse 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. If, if you go back uh, to Colossians chapter 1, it, it's in line again with our text. Verse 28, him 
we proclaim. Him we proclaim. It says in verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. There it is. There's a three-point outline. What we proclaim is Jesus Christ as Lord. Number two, we are servants. There, I didn't look it up, but I'm pretty sure that that's Paul's characteristic use of the word doulos, which means slaves. We are your slaves. And thirdly, we do this, <laughs> we do this for the sake of Jesus. It doesn't get any more clear than that. In fact, if wherever Paul was buried, if they ever find his bones, they could erect the headstone and put this uh, verse on the headstone. We, we do not. Some things people in ministry are not to do. We do not uh, proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I was trying to find this passage this morning and then finally stumbled upon it, but turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says in verse 1, this is how one should regard us. Here again is the ministry reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, this is how one should regard us. He was concerned about people's perception of his ministry. This is how one should regard us as, again, as servants of Christ and stewards or keepers of the mysteries of God. How did that work out for you, Paul? Drop down uh, to verse 11. Well, let's, let's start with verse 9, 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. There's the ministry reality. <laughs> Welcome to the ministry. We are fools for Christ's sake. And here is his sarcasm kicks in. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak. See, this was the criticism that he was heard. Uh, weak. Uh, he wasn't an eloquent man. He was weak in bodily presence. He wasn't charismatic. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Uh, Paul's tongue is firmly planted in his cheek here. Look, and then he takes his tongue out of his cheek and says, here, you want to talk about ministry reality to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed. There's one translation. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, translation. I think it is. And he translates this, we are poorly dressed. He says, 
He translates it as saying, we don't even have a spare change of underwear. That's pretty bad. When you're a minister of the gospel and you got to rinse out your skivvies every night, pretty bad. I don't know that much about you folks, but I dare say that that's probably not your situation. It was Paul's situation. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor. We see it. It was undeniable that, that Paul had labored working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He says, I don't write these things to shame you. He says, I write these things to remind you that you may have many teachers or guides, but you only have one father. I'm your father. You don't get to choose your parents. Years ago, there was a church in Oklahoma that called itself Scum of the Earth Church. I got a feeling they're probably not open anymore. Somebody said, oh, that's a great advertising campaign. Let's run with that. We're going to be scum of the earth until, of course, the scum of the earth started showing up. So let's turn back then again to this uh, companion passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says in verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Remember again in our text in Colossians chapter 1, he ends with on that note, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul ran on empty all the time. Empty, Paul empty. But he said, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then, Barclay says, Paul goes on to describe this Christian life in which our infirmity is intermingled with God's glory in a series of, of paradoxes. That's what we have in verse 8. Now, a paradox is simply defined as a tenet contrary to received opinion. <laughs> paradox, I think, is the ocean in which the saints in a church should swim and navigate. If you're, if you're not familiar with the 
disappointed but not devastated paradox. I don't, or if you refuse to submit to the paradoxical nature, Jesus himself prayed in John chapter 17, they're in the world, but they're of the world. And Father, I'm not praying that you should take them out of the world. Just let, let it be a paradoxical witness. People are supposed to scratch their heads when they look at us and say, I, I don't know how they do that. You know, when the normal thing to do would be to get angry, get upset, give somebody a piece of your mind. And yet, Paul says, when we are tempted to revile, when we are reviled, we turn around and we bless. Does that sound like you? Does it sound like me? That paradoxical nature of the gospel exhibited in Christian's life is the thing that attracts people to the faith. Let me ask you this question. How did you, how did you get through that? How did you deal with that? Well, I, I don't know. It was, it was tough. It was troubling, but... Jesus help me. There's another word, though, that pushes paradox to what I would call a mystery, and that is the word antinomy. Antinomy. Anti means against. Nomi comes from the Greek word nomos. In other words, have you ever, have you ever seen a picture of a bumblebee flying? And the engineers tell us that According to the laws of engineering, a bumblebee shouldn't be able to fly. But a bumblebee does fly. We all know that. So it's more than a paradox. Uh, contradiction precedes paradox. Paradox precedes antinomy. Antinomy is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we know that this shouldn't work, but somehow it does mysteriously. When you add mystery to paradox, you come up with antinomy, a fundamental and apparently unresolvable conflict. That's what we have in Paul's ministry reality. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For the Greeks, this was foolishness. To the Jews, this kind of wisdom was a stumbling block, but unto us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's, it's the air we breathe. It's the water we drink. It's the water we swim in. Antinomy. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians. Nevertheless, I live. <laughs> Yet not I, 
but Christ liveth within me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What? So that if you think just simply in terms of straight lines and black and white, you will never relish the paradox, the antinomy, the mystery of ministry, the mystery which God introduces into your life. A mystery which will sustain you, but a mystery that you will never completely understand. So we make the mistake sometimes of saying, why? We don't, we don't, ever, hear, we don't ever hear Paul asking that question in his writing. Why? First of all, God's answer, I think if God has an answer to that, God might just say, why not? Somebody says, why me? God says, why not you? Or God could choose to really answer that question. And you may not want to hear that answer. Jack uh, Nicholson, right? Shouting through the door. You can't handle the truth. In a lot of ways, I, I think when we ask the question why we are opening ourselves up for things that we, we cannot handle. Eternity will grace us with the ability to handle the answer, but right now we can't handle that answer. We get inklings. The veil that separates temporal living and eternity sometimes grows thin. And we poke our finger in the veil and sometimes it tears and we look through a glass darkly and we get an idea of what God may be up to. God dwells in unapproachable light. We would begin to understand that, and at the beginning of that understanding, we would simply cease to exist. So, Paul, look, look at what he says. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That's the first antinomy. Secondly, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Thirdly, persecuted, but not forsaken. Fourthly, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Here was his ministry reality. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you, the mystery. Do you ever think that you are clinging to the wrong things in your life? The things that you've come to the conclusion are so precious to you that you 
cannot live your life without them. And then God comes along and he says, like uh, pulling petals off the daisy, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Our lives are sometimes filled with subtraction, with degrees of emptiness, with a sense of loss. And God's purpose at that moment in that dark night of the soul, as St. John of the Cross put it, is to reveal to us by his grace what we don't need, what we could actually do better without. Look at it. Look at what he says. We are afflicted in every way. We are sore pressed at every point, but not hemmed in. There's an ascending scale here. Really what Paul's talking about here are the normal pressures of human existence. To be in a situation in which one bears the pressures of the surrounding world. There it is. We call it sometimes a pressure cooker. Look what he says. Uh, just move over a few verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says in verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, slaves of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. <laughs> there it is. Here's my ministry reality. Look what he says, perplexed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Actually, he, he's using uh, a play on the word perplexed there. He's actually saying perplexed, but not thoroughly perplexed. We, we don't like to be perplexed. We don't like to be put in a position where we're going, what in the world is going on here? But the promise is, is that the mystery, the enigma the paradox, the antinomy does not have the power to drive us to despair. There was a time in Paul's life when he felt that way, and he writes about it in his own words. If you look in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, he says in verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction, there's the word again, afflicted, afflicted, but not crushed, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. Remember, he, he writes later to Timothy and tell, tells Timothy, all Asia is lost to me. Look what he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence 
of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Persecuted, but not abandoned by God. That's the picture of a fugitive being hunted down by his adversaries, but able at the last moment to find a way of escape. God will not uh, tempt you beyond what you can have the ability to endure, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, after Paul, we read this last week, after Paul relates what ministry reality was like. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. On and on he goes. And then he says in verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, the, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. Here, that was the accusation at Damascus, and then he brings up a point of history, biography in his own life. Remember, he went up to Jerusalem um, to receive ostensibly approval from the apostles in the church at Jerusalem to go to the Gentiles, of which he says in Galatians, they added nothing to me. But when they found out that Paul was there, what happened? At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Persecuted, but not abandoned by God. I was hunted down like a fugitive, but God provided a way of escape. <laughs> you see the, the bling bling that we have going on in the popular church in America today, is the reason for the rise of the nuns. The Pew Research report asking people, do you have any religious affiliation? And more and more people are checking the box nuns. More people don't go to church in the history of this country than ever before. Why is it? It is because... The church has played footsie with this theology of suffering. It has not equipped the people to handle life as a reality. It's here. It's in the book. Finally, Paul says, struck down, <clears throat> but not destroyed. And here he gives the image of a wrestler, a wrestling match. You know, I used to, as a kid, I used to watch uh, wrestling on TV, on a TV that we were not supposed to have. And on Saturday nights, the wrestling came on. I think Brother Eddie, uh, this is maybe an urban myth, went with Wally Anderson down to the Chase Park Plaza on Saturday nights to watch wrestling. And, of course, we knew that it was great entertainment. It's kind of like Christian TV. We knew that it wasn't really real, but it was entertaining anyway. But when you saw someone body slam someone and you hear them thump down on that cat canvas and you say, that guy's not ever going to get up, right? And somebody, the, the other wrestler will lay on him. Yuck. And then the, 
the referee is counting, and at the count of nine, the guy gets up, right? This is the image that Paul wants to present to us. Struck down, in other words, flattened, but not destroyed. And it happens over and over again. Boom, boom, boom. Still getting up. I love Barclay at this point. He, <laughs> Barclay was, uh, ha- had his own pugilistic uh, uh, history. He says, knocked down, but not knocked out. He says, the supreme characteristic of the Christian is not that he does not fall, but every time he falls, he rises again. He says that he's never beaten, but he is never ultimately defeated. Look, Proverbs 24, 16. You see, and we hear this, we hear this from the bling bling preachers in the popular church in America. They love to quote this verse, but they never show us the path to realize this verse. Proverbs 24, 16. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. So Paula White loves to quote that verse, but never gives us the path by which that verse can be realized. So Kistemaker says the list of the eight Greek participles in verses eight and nine, two and and each paradox shows an increasing degree of severity from being afflicted to not being destroyed. There it is. Afflicted, that's where he starts, and he ends with not being destroyed. But go back with me again to our companion text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll close with this this morning. Look. Look, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Here, here it is. You want, you want to hear? Paul sums up. He, sum, he starts the fourth chapter by saying, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Look what he says. Now comes the second bookend, verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. There it is. That... That's my ministry philosophy. That is my hopeful ministry reality. And then he says in verse 16, so I'll repeat what I started with. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, this is the promise that we are to place our hope in. Daily renewal is promised as we look to things unseen. For this light momentary affliction, (laughs) verse 17, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Read the next three words with me in verse 18. As we look. Not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I'd say that the Apostle Paul had his priorities 
straightened up. I again remind you of how he ends the letter to the Colossians. He picks up the pen. He could have written anything. At the end, there were letters that were circulating that were ostensibly authored by Paul. There were some letters that were being forged that were going out under his name. And so Paul's, Paul's characteristic habit began then once the letter was dictated and written down that Paul would pick up the quill and actually sign his own name. You see with how large letter I sign this Paul. So the very last verse of the book of Colossians, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. That is the reality. Then he says, grace be with you. One is temporal. One is the light affliction. The other, Paul tells us, things that are unseen are eternal, and Paul makes sure that grace has the final word. Amen.